Thanks, guys. So they mentioned the table over and over. It's just outside in the lobby. You can stop there. Also, there's a lot of information about everything we talked about uh, this morning in your bulletin, so make sure to take a look at that. Um, and you can drop those off if you're not going to take them home out in the lobby when you're done. And now Nick's going to come up, and we're going to enter a time of really going into God's Word and applying it to our life. Hi, I'm Nick. Thank you for that really thorough announcement, guys. Hey. Um, I hope to see you guys. I'll be there on Saturday. If you're like a dude and you, were, you weren't enjoying the sing-along time where we were worshiping, and you're like, I don't like to sing songs, fine. I'll see you on Saturday. Lots of different kinds of personalities. Okay. Um, we're going to talk about the book of Zechariah today. Um, so if you have, and I'm going to bounce around the book a good bit. So if you have a Bible, you're going to want to open it to Zechariah. If you don't have one, there should be one in the pew there. And you want to turn to page 1745. 1745. And, um, yeah. The verse that's probably the most famous in the book of Zechariah is chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, which says this. I'll wait for the flipping to stop. It says this, So he, that's God, said to me, that's Zechariah, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. What are, the, what are you, almighty mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you'll become level ground. Then he will bring out the capstone to shouts of God bless it, God bless it. Because Zerubbabel's supposed to be rebuilding the temple. The capstone would be the last one, and so that would signify that they're done and actually accomplished something. And God is saying, he's calling himself the Lord Almighty, right? So he's the one with all the might. And so concerning Zerubbabel, who's actually the guy in the line of David, he's supposed to be king. He's the governor who has the right by line of kings to be king. God says, actually, you're not going to function on the basis of might or of power. This is going to get accomplished by my spirit. And so one of the big ideas of the whole Bible, and especially the book of Zechariah, is that God does things by his spirit. So if you only remember one vague sentence that you don't know what it means when you leave here today, remember that one. God does things by his spirit. So the, the question that always jumps into my mind is, what does that actually mean? What does that mean? God does things by his spirit. Right? And it means exactly what it says. It, 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 he does things by means of something that is non-material. Right? The means by which God uses are things that you actually can't get your hands on. Right? So if, if you said, um, things happened in a certain way, just the way God wanted them to, and you could have touched anything along those lines, but get your hands on God's providence. Try to—you you can't really do that, right? Or God's wisdom and his morality, that which he declares is good, true, and beautiful, which he instructs all of creation to be part of. Can you get your hands on a moral truth, like the, the moral proposition, uh, torturing babies is wrong, right? That's, that's true. It's as true as that pew is there. But you can't get your hands on it. In that sense, it's spiritual. Or even the power by which God something, does something. If you were there when Lazarus, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, right? There's a real power that raised a dead guy back to life. And you could have gotten your hands on Lazarus. But the actual power that happened there that made him come back to life, you can't actually get your hands on that. That is, the means by which God accomplishes things are spiritual. They are immaterial. They are abstract objects. They are spirit. They are not something you can get your hands on. And that's how God works, which means this, at least. You and I are not going to be able to usurp God's role in anything. You can't—you can't—we can't do it. It's done by means that are not accessible to us. God does things by spirit, so he can turn, turn to Zerubbabel, the guy who has the right to use all the physical power that there is, 
the army, the resources, the machinery are, are all at his disposal. And God says, this build, rebuilding the temple is not going to happen by means of your might or your power, but by my spirit, says the Lord, right? Now, that's a perfectly straightforward statement. It, however, it's a statement that is extremely difficult for people in our age and time, in our, in our age of modernity, in our experience of technology to accept. We use things to accomplish everything, right? And so the attitude I think that's really common towards that kind of a claim is dismissiveness. Like, we'll have a reason in our head. We'll have a reason why we'll say that, well, uh, but it's really just a sense of the whole thing just doesn't sound plausible to us, right? Like this idea that, listen, God does things by spirit. Everything God's ever going to do, he's going to do by spirit. He's going to do it in you. It's going to be enormously transformative. Your whole salvation, your whole future from now until eternity, everything that you're going to be and everything that you are is going to be dictated by the one who has created, made you, redeemed you, and you can't, you can't, Take hold of that. You can trust, you can follow, you can cooperate, but you can't actually control any of it. And that's what your life is like. And for most people, that sounds very passive, very non-modern, very, very difficult. And in that sense, I think it's a lot like the book of Zechariah. I mean, how many of us have taken the book of Zechariah seriously enough to have actually read it? Ever in our lives, the whole thing. Or understood it. Or, I mean, very, I mean, very few people have, you know, wake up in the morning and they go, you know what? What I have to do today, it's totally, it's totally there in the book of Zechariah. And darn it, I'm just, I'm gonna, I'm gonna live that out. I'm gonna do that. Boom. Zechariah. I mean, look, most people have no idea what's in that book. Right? Most pastors have no idea what's in that book. But the same sense of dismissiveness that we often use towards the Christian claim in general, particularly the spiritual claim that God does things by his spirit, is the same thing that probably comes to mind when we talk about the book of Zechariah. I mean, some of you probably were already, when we were like, hey, we're gonna talk about the book of Zechariah, you're like, oh my gosh, did I pick the wrong day to go to church? Right? Or you're like, oh great. So somehow my mom dragging me to church and this pastor have, have colluded with each other to torture me as badly as possible. Right? You're right, she called me. <laughs> you should call more often. So um, par part of the objection here is that it's really difficult for people to simply accept that something is deeply meaningful and should actually affect and even control how they see their life that's 2,600 years old that was uttered by a Hebrew-speaking ancient Near East prophet fellow who was dressed and wore his hair in God knows which way, who had never heard of the internet. I mean, how could he, how could he possibly know anything, right? But one of the things that I think we have to recognize is that there is an enormous prejudice in the culture that we live in against the old. And by old, it's anything that wasn't on the news in the last five days. Right? I mean, you've, you've heard this in the news not that long ago, things that people have brought up and somebody goes, that's old news. That would happen like 18 months ago. Right? There are other places in the world where things that happened three, four, five, six— hundred years, a thousand years ago is still really fresh in people's memories. It's kind of strange that we're culturally like that, but we are in America because there's going to be a new app come out tomorrow. In three or four months, you're going to feel like your phone is too old, right? So what do you think about your grandparents? One of the most famous quotes in Tolkien's book, The Lord of the Rings, is this one. Um, and yet people like it because of the line, not all who wander are lost, which basically gives people the right to say, I can, I can wander as aimlessly I want in my life as I want to, and then I can just quote a book that was one of the best novels of the 20th century to say, yes, my life looks totally aimless and I'm going nowhere, but guess what? Not all who wander are lost. Tolkien was doing something a lot more serious and deep with this section of the book. This is what it says. And notice how he flips around the aphorism. All that is gold does not glitter. That's not the normal aphorism, is it? The normal aphorism is, all that glitters isn't gold. That's not what he says. All that's gold does not glitter. Not all who wander are lost. The old that is strong does not wither. Deep roots are not reached by the frost. From ashes a fire shall be woken. A light from the shadows shall spring. Renewed shall be blade that was broken. The crownless again shall be king. 
Now, the context of Lord of the Rings, that is that the line of kings that is, was rooted back a few thousand years that had failed would come alive again and would, would rule the day. But there's this, there's this idea that is mainly lost on all us, that line, the old that is strong does not wither, because we don't have a concept for that. Right? We don't have a concept for that which is alive that doesn't wither. We don't even have that idea for machines. We haven't even figured out a way to build a machine yet that runs forever. Right? Our cars break down, things wear out, even the things that we think will run a long time often don't. And yet there is, there is a kind of old that doesn't wither. Let me give you an example. How long has two plus two equals four been true? A long time. That is an old abstract object. And yet, it's no older. It's no more aged than the dawn of the existence of logic itself or math itself, right? And you go through a, a, a lots of scores of these abstract objects that are— I mean, the fact that torturing babies is morally wrong has been true for a really long time, but she's not getting old. She doesn't have to go to a home. One of, one of the best books um, we've read our children is the book called The Wise Woman by George MacDonald. If you haven't read it, read it to your kids or yourself, you, you should. It's wonderful. And it has—MacDonald has one of the best— some of the best books in which the God figure is a woman. And so the wise woman is this, is this God figure in this novel, and there's two girls that she affects mainly. And it says when one of them interacts with her that when she first saw the wise woman, she got this sense that she had been around forever, and yet she was completely ageless. You could look at her and you couldn't tell, you wouldn't be able to guess whether she was 20 or 1,000. And yet, there was a sense in which she was old, meaning she had been around since the foundations of the world, maybe. And you see, don't let your experience dictate something that is utterly false, which is because you and I experience agedness, because we experience that oldness equals decay. Don't let yourself believe that all things are like that. There is, a, there is an old that doesn't wither. There is a kind of root that goes down deep enough that the frost cannot reach it. And that it comes back at its appointed time. I planted something like 12 fruit trees last year. And then we just happened to have like the worst winter on record. Right? So like $350 on fruit trees so they could all die. And not one of them did. Not one of them did. They, they all got the roots down deep enough. And they're just piled full of flowers right now. Because there's a different kind of existence than if it's not working for you right this second the way you want it to, it doesn't work. Right? Like, what did you do the last time your phone froze? I don't deserve this! You know? Oh, Gotta take the battery out. It takes like nine seconds to restart this thing. Oh, I paid good money for this. You know? We need harsher competition between San Francisco and— Korea, you know, Samsung and Apple, to get us to a place where everything works all the time forever. Now, even if you get to that point, though, the second objection people often have is, yeah, that, that the tree and the roots may go down, but it's rotten from the inside out, because um, what's really going on here, though, in this whole religion thing is people are really clinging to the past in a way they shouldn't. We really need to walk into the future, and this whole, like, oh, somehow Zechariah's meaningful doesn't really make any sense. Um, I don't know if you've seen this movie recently. It's one of my kids' favorites. They've probably watched it 15 times in spring break. It's, it's called The Croods. It's an animated movie. Have you seen it? The Croods. They love that movie, right? And um, the writer is John Cleese from Monty Python. I don't know if you noticed that, if you watch the things. Which I love Monty Python, but, but John Cleese is a materialist and atheist through and through. As funny as he is. Gosh, those accents. Anyway, um, but the, here's kind of the theme of the movie. You've got this family of Neanderthals that live in a cave, Right? And then they meet this, the girl meets, the daughter in the family meets this guy who like goes around outside of the caves and he has ideas. Life in the cave is ruled by laws. There's rules. Life in the cave is all about rules that keep you alive. Life outside the cave, life in the light, is all about ideas, right? There's this point in the movie where they're like running from the world falling apart seismically for some reason. And they get to this point where there's stuff coming down that they're afraid is going to kill them. And the dad, like, tries to get everybody together and get them in a cave. And the girl kind of ducks out and she goes, she goes, we're not getting in those, that cave again, right? I don't want to live in a cave. And he goes, you know, we got to get in here. We're going to die. And she, sa she says this, we would have already died if we listened to you. Your 
those rules don't work out here. You see the insinuation? Yeah, maybe your rules kept us alive for a while, but your rules don't work out here. We can't live by rules. We have to live by ideas. We have to be people of the light. We have to be progressive. We have to move forward. Now, thankfully, that message is pretty much lost on my kids. But that's the message of the film. Make no mistake about it. It's an either-or. It's a totally false either-or. But it's an either-or. Because there's this general idea that we have to go into the future— and see, here's what, peop- here's what religious people do, and conservative people generally in any realm of that word, is they keep trying to cling on to past things, rules that don't work out here. And, they, and what they do is they try to make them continually relevant by somehow taking something present and sticking it into the past to root it back there so you get this sense of longevity for the whole thing so that the past can control the future. And we need to get free of that whole thing, so we need to kick the whole religion thing and get rid of this nonsense and quit pretending the Old Testament has something to tell us and all that kind of thing. And here's why Zechariah is helpful for that. Because a lot of people who've criticized the Bible over the last three, four hundred years have basically said this. The way the New Testament authors accomplished this, the way they legitimized themselves, is by taking passages from the Old Testament that had nothing to do with Jesus and nothing to do with what Jesus did. And they pulled them out of their Old Testament context, however they like to, and they stuck them in the New Testament books to proof text whatever it is they were arguing. So they could say, Jesus did this, he's the Messiah, and, and the Old Testament says so, so you have to listen to us. But when you read those verses in their Old Testament context, they don't have anything to do with Jesus. And so the New Testament authors were just so focused on making Jesus Lord and King that they did that. And so, and a lot of people have that experience. In fact, probably there's people in this room who you've been reading the Bible. You've seen the little quotations. It's a quotation from the Old Testament. You've read the quotation, and you're like, that kind of fits. And then you go, oh, look, there's a footnote for the Old Testament passage. So you flip back to the Old Testament passage, assuming that when you read that Old Testament passage, it'll say something like, and then Jesus is going to come around the middle of the Roman Empire, and he's going to— And it would be just really obvious to two are related. You'd be like, oh my gosh, there's such a clear relationship between these two. But here's what most people experience. They go back and they read it, and they don't have that experience. They feel like, well, that's kind of out of context. So much so— that even relatively conservative scholars, people who believe in the Bible, have said things like this. One of my, one of my, um, the seminary professors I had to read in seminary said, you know, the New Testament authors did rip passages out of context to put them in the New Testament, but they were inspired by the Holy Spirit, and you're not. So it was okay that they did it, but you can't do it, so don't do that when you preach the Bible, right? That's what I learned in seminary, which is so helpful. <laughs> but I had one professor named Don Carson— D.A. Carson, who wrote a book that's about this thick now, called The Use of the, the Old Testament and the New, where they go through these two scholars, and they comment on every single use of the Old Testament and the New Testament, and how it's being used, and all that kind of thing. Because here's, here's, what, here's what he found. Um, he, went to, he went to Cambridge for his PhD. This is years ago, in the 60s. And that was the, the prevailing view there was the view of this scholar named C.H. Dodd, which is basically like, the New Testament authors did whatever they wanted to, right? And he's like, that can't be right. Right? And the evangelicals were like, yeah, but they were inspired by the Spirit. But he's like, that can't be right, right? So he started studying them. He picked some that really looked like that. They looked like they pulled it out and put it in there, and it's just a proof text. And he said, let me just see if I can figure this out. So what he did is he looked a lot more closely at the Old Testament text. He didn't just look at the three verses around it, but he read the whole paragraph, and he read the section, and he read the chapter, and he looked at the flow of logic in the whole prophetic book, and he looked at what the prophecy was doing, and then what the New Testament author was doing, and was there a relationship between them? And what he found was is that he'd studied one, and he'd go, oh, wait a second, you go a little deeper, and the theme here and the theme here are identical. And Jesus really does fulfill that thematically. And then he looked at another one. He's like, oh wait, the New Testament author is using this as an illustration of what's happening. So this is a picture of that. That's all he's using it for, and it fits perfectly. And then he kept going, and he, st- he studied them and studied them. And, and, and pretty soon he said, well, they're not all like this. And then he kept going. He's like, well, there's a lot that aren't like this. And then he's like, I think most of them aren't like this. And by the time he got to the end of his PhD, he was like, I'm not sure any of them are like that. And I have had this experience for about 10 years of studying the Bible since seminary. Where when I come across these Old Testament passages and they look like they're kind of out of context, you know what I assume now? I don't assume that the New Testament author took it out of context because he was inspired by the Spirit somehow. I assume I don't understand the Old Testament text he took it from. That's what I assume now. And I go back to that Old Testament text and I I read the whole book. 
I look at the whole oracle. I look at what's happening in the book, what's being taught, and I start looking at the bigger picture, and here's—I found the exact same thing Don Carson found. The more I go back to these, I have not found one yet. I've probably studied 50 of them now. A few hundred hours of time. I haven't found one yet that really is just a proof text. Let me give you a couple examples in the book of Zechariah, and here's why I'm saying this. Because here's my hope. When you see the relationship between the Old Testament quotation and Zechariah, and then its fulfillment more than 500 years later, and the significance that has about who God really is right now, you will see that there are roots that go down beneath any frost of modernity that would demythologize what you can really believe about God. That the earnestness by which the Old Testament authors and the New Testament authors said, God is real, Christ is king, God works not by might, not by power, but by his spirit. He redeems you graciously, not by your works or performance. He will bring you to himself. He has died and risen again for your redemption, and he will ultimately return to remake creation. Therefore, you can walk with him and love him and serve him and not be the least bit intellectually, morally, emotionally ashamed for doing so because he is the king, rightfully so, and it is good that he is king because there is no one who can touch him, not just in power, but in goodness, truth, and beauty. That's my goal. So let's look at a couple examples. Let's see how many we have time for since the introduction was 20 minutes. So Matthew 21 says this. This passage comes in what we call the triumphal entry. So Holy Week, right? The week before Good Friday and Easter, Jesus enters Jerusalem, and he enters kind of as king, and they put him up on a donkey, and he rides in as a donkey, and the, and the biblical authors say, hey, listen, this was quoted in the Old Testament. So they go, look, this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets. Say to the daughter of Zion, that's the people of Jerusalem, right? The daughter of Zion, the city of God, see your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey, right? Jesus came in the triumphal entry on a donkey, that's quoted in Zechariah. Zechariah says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. Right? Now, so look on page 1480 or chapter 9, verse 9 in Zechariah. And so that's what it says, right? Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. Your king comes to you Righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots of Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for, and then it goes on like that, and you're kind of like, well, how come you get to stop at the end of verse 9? You see the issue? What was happening before that? What's happening? Why would just that verse, how does that work? They just found something about a donkey, right? I mean, to say anything about Shrek. And so it's just kind of like, oh, so oh, now you just put that on Jesus, and that's all, that, you know, is that really right? And see, a lot of people feel like that's just kind of like taking that out of context. Now, one of the things I, I argue, tried to argue the last couple weeks is one of the things you have to remember when we interpret the prophets, when they're intentional—now remember, the prophet is living in a particular time, time one, Right? They're speaking to people who are alive at that moment for which what they're saying has significance in their lifetime. So time two is from there out 40 or 50 years, right? That time period, right? Then there's another horizon because they're talking about the ultimate salvation that has significance now. Because God's going to do that in the end, this is what we should do now and this is what we could believe now, right? But then what we know is that, that there's, there's two Savior moments. There's the suffering servant where God comes to redeem. But then there's a triumphant return. So then there's two more horizons. So there's the prophet speaking at that moment. There's the lifetime he's talking about. Then there's the coming of Christ. There's the first coming of the king where he accomplishes certain things. And then there's the final coming where final redemption happens. And when you read, we read these oracles that are, it's called apocalyptic literature, where the genre and how it talks and the way it uses images and stuff is kind of moving in and out of some of these things. The prophet is moving in and out of those four time periods in, in kind of in a strange way, and you don't always pick it up unless you listen really closely. And so the king comes to them, but ultimately what this does say about this person is that they will rule a kingdom that will cover the entire earth. This is referring to the king. The question is, is it Jesus? 
And if it is Jesus, then what's wrong with using this verse? Right? Now, to put that in context for you, you've got to realize what's already happened by the time you get to chapter 9. So turn back a couple pages to chapter 3. Sorry, this is going to go kind of fast because— Anyway, let's just— Chapter 3 is, is being put forward to this person named Joshua, who is the high priest for the Jewish people. The, the priests and the kings can never be the same people in Israel because the priests are all the sons and sons of Levi. It's one of the 12 tribes. And the kings are in the line of Judah. They're split up. They can't ever be one. They weren't like any other ancient people for whom the king was also the priest. Jews weren't like that. The two, that's actually, if you don't know this, this is actually where the founding fathers in America got the idea of the separation of powers. They got it from the Bible in the Old Testament. These two could not be put together, right? And so— But yet he comes to Joshua, and this is what he says about him. Look at verse 8. So this is on page 1475, about two-thirds of the way down. Listen, O high priest Joshua, and your associates seated before you. You are men symbolic of things to come. Okay, so whatever's going to be said about these people, these people represent something that's future. He's explicitly saying that. I am going to bring my servant the branch. Now, if you don't know this, my servant is the title for the Messiah in the book of Isaiah particularly in the chapters in 42, 49, and the 50s in that book. I did a whole series on that if you want to go back and listen to those, which I'm sure you do. Um, But my servant is the reference in Isaiah to the the Messiah. The branch is the, the prophet Jeremiah's title for the Messiah. So when God says, I'm going to bring my servant, the branch, he's making extremely clear that he's talking about the Messiah king that's going to be coming. Okay? My servant, the branch, he's bringing to the two, these two great former prophets, bringing it into this context. See a stone I have set in front of Joshua. So Joshua's there, and the stone God has set in front of him. There are seven eyes, or seven cuts, on the one stone. Seven in the Bible is used for completion, right? So there's a stone in front of him that represents something, right? What does it represent? I will engrave an inscription on it, right? So that's the significance of the stone. It'll have something inscribed on it, and that is the significance of what Joshua and what he refers to as a person is going to represent, right? Says the Lord Almighty, and I will remove the sins of this land in a single day, right? So you got Joshua, who's the high priest, who's symbolic of something to come, right? Out of whom will come my servant, the branch, the Messiah. There will be a task mainly that will be done by him as priest, and it will be as referenced in total completion by this stone God has set before him that he will take away the sins of the people on a single day through a single act, okay? Now, I know that's not near specific enough. That's that's supposed to be ironic, sorry. And now flip over to chapter 6. Chapter 6, starting in verse 9, it's talking about Joshua again. Same guy, high priest who can't be king, right? And so God comes to him and he says to the prophet, he says, make a crown and put it on Joshua. Now that is not okay. Okay, if you know anything about the Old Testament and the Jewish people, that is not okay. This is the only time this has ever happened. The idea that the signification of kingship would not be put on Zerubbabel, but would be put on Joshua, who's the high priest. That's impossible. Okay? So how do we understand this? Verse 12. So look at the little 12 there. Tell him, that is Joshua, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Here is the man, so we're talking about Joshua the high priest who's now wearing the king's crown. Here is the man whose name is the branch. Why does he use that title? And he will branch out from this place. You see the metaphorical relationship? This is a guy whose name is the branch— And therefore, as king, right, because the priest has now been crowned, as king, he will branch out, meaning he will spread out his king as ruler of all things, right? Now, now, track with the logic here. From this place, and build the temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord is the priest's job. Branching out among all people is the king's job. Now, notice what this man is going to do. He's going to branch out and build up the temple of the Lord. That's not supposed to be doable with one person. It is he who will build the temple of the Lord, and he will be clothed with majesty, and will sit and rule on his throne. And he will be a priest on his throne. Do you see that mixing again? You're not supposed to be able to be a priest on a throne, but this figure will be somehow. And there will be harmony between the two. The crown will be given—you want to hear me pronounce these? 
Tehildai, Tobijah, Jediah, and Hen son of Zephaniah as a memorial in the temple of the Lord. So you've got this guy who's already a priest. He's crowned king. He's going to rule. He's going to branch out like a king, and he's going to build up the temple like a priest. And then he's going to sit on his throne in the temple. That's what it says there. Now that is insane. Nobody's even allowed in there. You can't have a human king in there. Human king, in fact, there was, one, there was one king that went in one time to the temple, and he offered a sacrifice that he wasn't supposed to, and God gave him leprosy. Because he's like, dude, you can't be in here. And the priest's like, dude, you can't be in here. He's like, I'm the king, I can do what I want. And so he gets leprosy for that, which was really fun, I imagine. Because God fiercely protected this division. But apparently, he says, there will be one, there will be one priest king that will be all this. And he says, this is the man whose name is the branch, right? Joshua, his name, right? Joshua, of course, is Yeshua, which when transliterated in Greek is Iesu, which when goes, it goes through the transliteration of the German languages is Jesus. Jesus and Joshua, the same name. Translated, transliterated are different languages. So that's already in place by the time you get to chapter 9. There's going to be a priest king who's going to take away the sins in one day. He's going to branch out from there and build up the temple and be the king over all peoples in his temple, both priest and king forever. And then you get, oh, and he's going to show up on a donkey, by the way. And you're like, well, that can't be the same person. That's like four chapters later. Okay, but remember the last oracles in, Ze- in Zechariah go from chapter 9 to chapter 11 and then 12 to 14. So 9 to 11 are the same oracle. Now look in chapter 10. So at chapter 9 ends from 10 to the bottom with the God of peace. Like he's going to bring about a global kingdom in which there will be peace. In chapter 10, he's a God of provision, right? Ask the Lord for rain in the springtime, the Lord who makes the storm clouds, right? He gives showers of rain to men and plant the fields for, and plants of the field for everyone. So he's saying God provides. So he's going to rule in peace. He's going to provide, right? And he's going to get rid of the bad leaders, particularly the spiritual shepherds. Because the three offices of the Messiah, if you remember from Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel are, he's king, he's priest, and he's shepherd. Which is one of the—I'll get it, I won't get it to the other thing now. So you get into chapter 10, and so look at verse 3 in chapter 10. My anger burns against the shepherds, right? God is apparently upset with the shepherds. And I will punish the leaders, for the Lord Almighty will care for his flock, the house of Judah, and will make them like a proud horse of battle. From Judah will come the cornerstone, from him the tent peg, from him the battle bow, from him every ruler. So listen, the priest king isn't going to come from the priest line. He's going to come from the line of Judah. He's going to be a priest from the line of kings. The tent peg is the person referred to in chapter 9. It's the same person. It's the line of Judah. It's the branch of Jesse. You see, you start putting these together through the book of Zechariah, and you begin to realize that you were a little half-cocked going off on Matthew for quoting this. The difference was that it was not that he was ripping out of his context. He actually stood, understood the 14 chapter, more than that, the thousand year history of all the prophecies of who the Messiah would be, how they played out through the major prophets, how that seeped its way into the book of Jeremiah, Zechariah, how Zach, God told Zechariah to appropriate these things and teach them throughout the different oracles of his book, and how it comes to culmination in chapters 9 through 14. And as he understands that, he quotes those verses as he sees Jesus on the donkey knowing that he is the risen king who will return to fulfill the rest of the oracle. It wasn't that we should be cynical. It's that we didn't look closely enough. Let's just look at a second example really fast. Example two. There's three, but we won't have time for all three. In Matthew 27, 3 to 10, it says this. When Judas, who had betrayed Jesus, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 silver coins to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned, he said. So in case you don't know much about the Bible here, Judas was one of the disciples. He sold out Jesus for 30 pieces of silver so that the chief priests could get him and kill him. Now he's, when he saw that they're actually going to kill Jesus, he's like, oh, that was not a good idea. Okay. I've sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. 
What is that to us? They replied. That's your responsibility. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left. Then he went away and hanged himself. The chief priest picked up the coins and said, it's against the law to put these into the treasury since it's blood money. So they decided to use the money to buy the potter's field as a bare place for foreigners. A potter's field is a place where you throw broken pottery that's already been baked, so it can't be made into pottery again. So it's basically a trash dump. Nobody cultivate, cultivates it for wheat or anything, so it's a great place to bury people you don't care about. Get it? This is why it's been called the field of blood to this day. Then what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. They took the 30 silver coins, the price set on him by the people of Israel, and they used them to buy the potter's field as the Lord commanded me. Now you'll notice that the prophet Jeremiah, most Bible scholars have noticed that the prophetic books as put together by the Jewish people have, has Jeremiah as the first book, and a number of Jewish sources refer to all the prophets as the book of Jeremiah. So they think that Matthew is following that tradition here. That's why he says Jeremiah instead of Zechariah. This is the quotation. I told them, if you think it's best, give me my pay, but if not, keep it. So they paid me 30 pieces of silver, and then the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, the handsome price for which they priced me. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them to the house of the Lord, to the potter. Now, in the later oracles of Zechariah, he doesn't clarify very often who the in, indefinite personal pronouns are referring to. One of the things I say to my kids all the time and some of the staff is they'll come and be like, so she said to him, and then they went here, and then we went, I'm like, whoa, time out. Fewer impersonal pronouns, more definite nouns. Right? But in Zechariah, a lot of times he'll say he or me or whatever, and you're kind of like, well, who's he, we, or me? And so a lot of people have said, well, me is Zechariah. He's talking about himself. And so the people apparently aren't listening to him, and Jewish history tells us that Zechariah was killed. He was murdered, ultimately. And so this is them not liking him. They're rejecting him. He's like, well, fine. Well, why don't you tell me what you think I'm worth? They go, you're worth 30 pieces of silver. He's like, thank you. And then he throws it into the temple because he's like, if this is God's message, not mine, and if that's what you think of me, then I'm going to throw you money and you can forget you. Right? And then they stab him or something, and it ends all Shakespearean and so on. And so, applying this to Jesus is basically taking something that was about the people's rejection of Zechariah, applying it to Jesus, and it's really not warranted. You're just ripping something out of the Old Testament to stick it in the New to legitimize your interpretation of Jesus. And, I, you know, I, on the face of it, I think that there's a certain amount of plausibility to that, unless you understand the book of Zechariah and the Old Testament and the prophetic stuff about Jesus and so on. So, for example, if you look, if you flip over to 1482 there, chapter 11, there's an oracle that starts in, in or there's a section that starts in verse 4 and goes through to the end of the chapter, which basically tells this story. The Lord says that he's pasturing his flock. His flock of people that are his flock. It turns out it's all the nations, but it specifically focuses on Israel. And he said, as their shepherd, I made two staffs. One I called favor or grace or compassion. The other I called union or togetherness, right? And he said, with these two staffs, I sought to shepherd my flock. Right? Apparently you can hit butts on both sides that way. So what happened though is when he came to his flock, the leaders of his flock rejected him, the other shepherds. They're like, you can't shepherd you. What, who do you think you are? Allah, right? And he said, well, I, I, that's not okay. So he gets rid of some of the shepherds and he kind of makes war on the shepherds. But just as he's trying to get rid of the shepherds so that the flock could actually have a good shepherd, the flock turns on him. And they're like, we don't want you. And so he's like, you know what? Fine. So he take, he says, I took my staff favor and I broke it. And I took my staff union, and I broke it. And in doing so, I broke my covenant with the peoples. That's a very important phrase. I broke my covenant with the peoples. And then he says, if you don't want me as your shepherd, you tell me what you think I'm worth. And they say, you're worth 30 pieces of silver. Here you go. Now, the only other place in the Bible where 30 pieces of silver is used is when Joseph is sold into slavery by his brothers. Um, other biblical scholars have said that's actually a pretty standard price throughout biblical times for a slave. So to pay 30 pieces of silver is to basically say, you're worth as much as a slave. That's what your life is worth. So when you, when you come to this passage, if you start in verse 10, then I took my staff called favor and broke it, revoking the covenant I had made with, now notice here it doesn't say with the Jews. It says, I revoked the covenant I made with the nations. Because the covenant wasn't just with the Jews. The covenant was to make the Jews a nation of priests for all creation. And that as an example to all peoples, they would be drawn to the glory and truth of God through them. 
So when he breaks his covenant with the Jews, he is implicitly breaking his covenant with everyone because it was through the Jews that that resentment message was to go out. It's not just the Jewish people that lose out. It's all of humanity. And when he breaks his shepherding staffs, he's saying, I'm breaking the covenant of shepherding I made with everyone. Right? It was revoked on that day, and so the afflicted of the flock who were watching me knew that it was the word of the Lord. I told them, if you think best, give me the pay, give me my pay, but if not, keep it. So they paid me 30 pieces of silver. So it was kind of like, have you ever done something for somebody, and they, instead of, you were like, they were like, well, how much do I owe you? And like, you did like a couple hundred dollars of work for them, and you're like, well, you don't owe me anything. And so they go, no, 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 let me give you a couple of bucks. And they give you like three dollars, right? That's like a lot more insulting than not paying, right? You either pay the 300 bucks because you're paying them for their work, or you receive their generosity. You don't pay them a couple of dollars, right? And so he's, he is the shepherd of all the earth. And he goes, you tell me how much you think I'm worth. And they go, about as much as a slave, buddy. Here you go. Now, I don't know if you know this, but under the Roman system, the only way a Roman citizen, somebody who was not part of the slave class, could be crucified was on the express written consent of the emperor himself of the entire empire. It was impossible to get a Roman citizen crucified. But Jesus they crucified because he wasn't a Roman citizen and they could darn well treat him as a slave if they wanted to. So you notice that in this passage, both the class of leaders, the shepherds, and the people say that the worth of God as their great shepherd is the value of a slave. In the crucifixion of Jesus— one of his own disciples of selected shepherds and the chief priests, the group of shepherds, agree that the worth of Jesus is the worth of a slave. Then, at the hands of the Roman officials and the people, they execute him as a slave through crucifixion. That is, humanity determines that God's great shepherd is worth precisely the cost of a slave and ought very well to die as one. Thank you very much. And so when Matthew appropriates this, he says, think about this. And nobody knows what throwing it into the temple to the potter means. Nobody has any idea what that means. Except for that that cost would not be given. It would be thrown away and then it wouldn't be used. It would not be kept by God. You see, because it was blood money, the priests, even corrupt as they were, didn't keep it in the temple because it was blood money for God's only son. Even, even in the midst of their corruption, they got rid of it. And so there's this, there's, as you read this, you go, okay, wait a second. There's a whole lot going on there. And then notice in, chat, in verse 15, go read on just a couple more verses, it says this. So, so after he broke that and broke the covenant, right, and the people treated him as a slave, it says this. Then the Lord said to me, take again the equipment of a foolish shepherd, for I am going to raise up a shepherd over the land that will— not care for the lost or seek the young or heal the injured or feed the healthy, but will eat the meat of the choice sheep tearing off their hooves. And it talks about, so there'll be, the, the king shows up as shepherd. The people treat him as a slave. They pay his price as a slave. They execute him as a slave. And then he goes back again and disappears from public view. He's still a shepherd, but he's not the king shepherd. He's not the chief shepherd. He's not shepherd over everything. He goes back to the way he was being a shepherd before. And humanity really suffers, even though he's shepherding them in a way. Humanity greatly suffers until a future time when something else happens. Hmm. And once you move forward and you see how, how John appropriates this, if you just turn to the next page, right? Chapter 12, verse 10, and I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. That can also be translated repentance and prayer. Supplication is kind of a fancy word for prayer, right? Except supplication is prayer where you're asking for something. And grace in this context probably means repentance. So after the shepherd disappears, later on in the or uh, oracle he comes back, and the people who have pierced him have now gained a spirit of repentance and a desire to ask him to help them. The one they, says this, they will look on me, the one they have pierced. That is, the piercing of this shepherd king actually happened in the past tense. Future to that, 
they come around and they, think about this. If you've read the Bible a good bit, in Romans chapters 9 to 11, the Apostle Paul has this very strong conviction that at some point a massive group of the Jewish people are going to turn to Jesus, but it's not going to happen yet. It might not happen in his lifetime. Where did he get that confidence? Did he just dream that up? Was he just praying one day and God just told him? Unless this passage, that's what that means. That what will happen is this shepherd who they got rid of like a slave then went back to a place where they couldn't be seen in, in, as their public shepherd, but was still, still had on the garments and work of a shepherd. He was still shepherding, but not publicly. Then that group of people come around at some point and they have a spirit of repentance and they ask the one they've pierced to be their God and King. And you go, what? That, that's, is that Pierce refer? That's probably somebody just anybody. That could be anybody who was killed. You're right. But now read a few verses, verses on, look at chapter 13, just a few verses later. On that day, a fountain will be opened to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and impurity. See how that connects back with chapter 3, which connects with chapter 6, which connects with chapter 9, which connects with chapter 10, 11, 12, and 13. Do you see the context of the whole thing? And, you're, and we're not done. You're like, well, wait a second. Th- but then what? On that day I will banish the names of the idols of the land, and they will be remembered no more. And then in verse 7, it poetically argues, and what does it say? You're like, well, finally, the king is there then, right? No. No, it's going back to this, the third horizon. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who is close to me, declares the Lord. Why would God say that? Why would God awaken the sword of an un- unrighteous people oh, against his shepherd? His shepherd is the one he's intermittently vindicating and intermittently leaving to whatever. Against the man who is close to me, declares the Lord. And then this verse that you might have heard in another place. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Ever heard that one? Both Matthew and Mark use that in reference to Jesus being taken into custody to be killed. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. That is because... The New Testament authors did not understand three verses in this book to be about Jesus. His first coming and his final return. They understood every breath of the, of the whole span of the prophetic book from chapter 1, verse 1 to the end of chapter 14 to breathe the air of the coming king. And here's what you need to know about that king. He goes to the most powerful human who's concerned about, what do I have to do? What do I have to do to be, to be saved, to be happy, to be with this, for it to work out? For, what do I have to do? And he goes to this guy, Zerubbabel, who, who could be king, has everything, all the human resources at his hands. He says, Zerubbabel, not by might and not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. In another book of the Bible, it says this after God says he's going to do something amazing. He says, the zeal of the Lord Almighty shall accomplish this. As opposed to something you might do or something I might do. Let me ask you this. How do you get 100 to 150 people on a Saturday in May to a work project in Madison? How do you do that? That's crazy. And on Saturday, I will be able to put my hands on people, but I will not be able to touch the thing that inspired them morally in terms of the beauty of desiring to sacrifice a day for a greater good for people who cannot accomplish this for themselves. I cannot produce that, but God can produce that, right? What does it take to be saved? What does it take to be one with God? You, you can't do it. There's a shepherd king whose name is Jesus, that is Joshua, who, Josh, do you know what the name means? It means he saves. That's what the name means. Who comes and opens the fountain on a single day, takes away the sin of the people in a single action, is the shepherd of God who is struck by the sword of wicked men for the purposes of the redemption of everyone who will believe in him. And I just want to remind you, if you're tired and you're frustrated and religion doesn't work for you and all that kind of thing, listen, you may not understand Zechariah 4, 6, and 7, which could entirely change your life. If God can say it to a king about what he'd accomplish, he can darn well say it to you and me. That it is not by might 
and it is not by power, and it is not by performance, and it is not by consumption, and it is not by technology, and it is not by your health, and it is not by your roles, it is not by your education, it is not by any of those things, but it is by, God says, my spirit, says the Lord. And you can only ever cooperate with that through faith. When I preach the second sermon on Zechariah, I'll talk a lot more about exactly how that happens. But the first thing I want you to know is that there are roots that go so deep that no frost of technological modernity can deconstruct them. There's a tree that lives after as long a winter of self-indulgence and self-importance as you can possibly muster. And it will leaf out and the crownless will return and be king. The one who has taken on the old shepherd's garb before he returns as the final king will return and you can belong to him through faith alone. And you can hope in him, and he can inspire in you a beautiful, enjoyable, self-sacrificial love that will fuel your heart permanently. If you'll trust in the one who is the priest King Joshua, who for our purposes, we call Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you'd help us to see, embrace, enjoy the fact that this root of your truth that runs through the entire history of the world is one living root that goes down deeper than we can imagine and that the trunk is thick and growing all the way through. It might be leafless in this perfect winter, but we recognize something that we cannot really get away from. That the only way that we can be people of the future and people of ideas is if we're also people of the truth and that truth's rootedness in the one who is forever old but never growing old. Older than the ages of our earth and yet not old, not aged, not frail. We pray that you'd make us a people who so understand that reality that today we have the kind of joy necessary to mother, the kind of joy necessary to express humble thankfulness to our mothers, to trust you for the first time, to walk with you again, to be thankful, to be free of the anxiety of thinking that everything is done by our might and power and not by your spirit. 